0: Growing a business is hard, but it does not have to be. Once a week, we take a break from the hustle and bustle in business to talk about innovations and what's new in the C-suite. This is the Fractional C-Suite Retreat, and I'm Joseph Frost. Pull up a seat at the fire, grab a drink, smoke a cigar, and just join me as we relax, learn, and get inspired. This retreat is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow with better marketing strategy. Welcome. Today's guest is a highly accomplished, respected executive with a proven ability to transform and lead a business through periods of downturn and growth. He has 30 plus years of experience leading high-level sales efforts in startups and established international companies in retail, manufacturing, and energy. He also served on the board of directors for several startups and has been a member of the board of directors for junior Achievement since 2002. He is founder of JL Chapman Group, welcome john chapman how are you john i'm doing great how are you good i'm uh what's the weather like in oha today oh my gosh we are like in the best weather of the year i think i i love fall and uh this is the fall time and but we have not gotten to the cold part of fall so 50s 60s sunny leaves are falling it's beautiful. beautiful
1: And I think you and I spoke before, I actually traveled out to Omaha in 1979 and played in the College World Series.
0: Yes. The America's Pastime College World Series. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, I'm sure, here in a minute. But uh, I'd love to get us started with uh, a question I like to pose to all my guests is, um, what is something that uh, you think that... uh, Uh, you're interested in or know about that other C-suite leaders uh, should be aware of or thinking about these days?
1: Well, you know, one of the things that, let me start off by saying, uh, when I got my MBA 21 years ago, one of the first classes I took was a strategy class. And, um, you know, as an undergrad, you don't take strategy. And and the professor was world-renowned uh, Ron and so somebody asked him the question, what strategy? And so he said, he poised this, this particular problem this company was experiencing. And he started pointing at students. And uh, we had 55 souls uh, cohorts and taking um, the class. And it was at uh, Wake Forest University. And he went around the room and he pointed at me. And I said, well, this is what I would do. And he said, well, that's just what the company did. And I said, well, that's what I do every day. I solve problems and look for opportunities. Isn't strategy and sales the same thing? And of course, we got in this huge discussion because I was the lone sales guy in the class. A lot of HR, finance, uh, there was a few marketing people. Um, and so they got in this debate. And so I, I believe, truly believe companies, not all companies, but you know, companies give salespeople lip service. You know, it's go forth and multiply. And, and so I've looked at sales as very strategic uh, in the work I do. It has to be strategic. You know, what problem are you trying to solve? What's your value proposition? And how do you marry that value proposition up with the, the prospect you're calling on? And it's got to be, you know, a focused, focused effort. Um, can't be things, do all things to all people. And so that's what I do. The second thing that uh, we'll talk about is I'm actually an educator. I started the North Carolina Sales Institute at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, um, teaching young people the modality of sales. And now I teach, uh, I'm starting the program at East Carolina University, uh, the Academy of Sales Leadership, where we're um, um, actually teaching young people how to sell. And you think about in a business, What's the most important number on the p l in order to make a profit? It's the sales. number. And so we're teaching young people how to sell because, uh, statistically when they go into the workforce, if you graduate with any major at a university, your first job, 50% of your first job is sales. If you're a marketing major, it's 90%. So, uh, yeah. we're teaching young people how to sell and, and uh, we, uh, we we get uh, sponsors in front of the students teaching them, you know, that sales is not a bad word. And, uh, you know, I love the comment. We had a, a gentleman speaking and one of the sales students said, he doesn't look like a salesperson, you know? So I said, what does a salesperson look like? You and I, I don't think look like salespeople, you know? So they have a, young people have a misconception of what sales is. And it's professional, strategic, and it's... Uh, it's a noble profession.
0: What are some of your favorite sales books? Maybe one you teach in your classes.
1: Well, I love Ziglar. You know, and it's, uh, you know, uh, I see you know, at the top, uh, how to close a sale. I love to listen to Zig because he was partly motivational and a great salesperson. And um, but he, he teaches te- the best books. I'm, te- I'm reading them. Um, Frank uh, Escudee's book now on uh, so sales strategy, which I think is a great book for what I do. Is, is sales is very strategic. Grant Cardone has a good book. Um, Jeffrey Git- Gitmore has a good book. I, I just finished listening to The Wolf of Wall Street, and it's <laughs> it, 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 it's interesting uh, because I have never been a transactional salesperson. It's I build relationships try to help customers solve their problems, use my product or service. And at the end, there's no hard sell here. So are we going to do business together or not? And if not, that's okay too. You know, it's still keep in touch. we made friends. If I can help you in any way, you know, please reach out to me. Um, You know, being a trusted advisor is is sort of the word I tell students as a salesperson.
0: Yeah. The, the very first sales book I ever read was uh, Spin Selling. I don't know if you remember that one. It's oh, yeah. Well, one. yeah.
1: Actually, it's the curriculum we use. Uh, it, what's interesting about spin, and I love Neil Rackham's book, it's, it, the thing it lacks is is discovery. Now, what I mean by discovery, if, if you don't know, if you're a software salesperson and you have a particular software that the buyer is completely unaware of, it's difficult to spin sell that particular product so it's it's discovery systems i call it so it's a great format we teach it at the university it's it's um it's you know i still use it today but it's you know basically the the salesperson closes at the end so or the, the buyer actually closes at the end not the salesperson right but but it misses that that part where you have to overcome uh reluctance to discover you know as you know, you get a, you call somebody up, and I'm not interested. And um, you know, a good friend of mine, um, he 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 actually wrote the book with great salespeople, Do Mike Bosworth. I love what he says. Can I tell you a story? And that's how you really overcome buyer resistance.
0: And yeah, there's a great marketing book called um, I think it's uh, Made to Stick.
1: Yep, I read that name. book. But, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. It's all about kind of the science of storytelling and how to tell a good story that sticks uh, and, and resonates with uh, your audience. So I think stories are how for, you know, for thousands of years, how we shared information and, yeah. and how we retain it. It's so important in marketing uh, and in sales, certainly.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you look at cavemen and they, they edge down the wall the buffaloes and things like that they were telling a story
0: speaking of cavemen so when did you start learning sales <laughs> <laughs> well, back in the day
1: back in the day we well, you know i was in a, 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 an accounting major and okay. um, and this is this is a this is a true story and i play baseball and as i, to- I told you and so my first uh year um i was already uh six credits behind because they didn't want you to take a full load your first year. You, you played the fall. I mean, you played all the time. I mean, basically uh, December, you took December off and then you were back at it when you were back to school. So between my freshman and sophomore year, I, I decided to uh, stay at the university. I went to University of Connecticut and studied, take two classes and worked in the athletic department, you know, the outside maintenance team. And that summer, the, the head of the the uh, maintenance uh, team was a guy named Henry Lachapelle, and one morning Henry said, uh, "Chapman, uh, I want you to grab a rake, some black bags. <clears throat> I'm going to drive you out to the soccer field, and I'm going to drop you off. And I want you to rake the soccer field and do piles, bag it, and I'm going to come up, come back about eleven thirty, and uh, you know we'll drive the truck around the park, soccer field and throw the bags in the back, and we'll bring you back for lunch." So it takes about ten minutes to drive out because it's 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 uh, beyond the campus uh, where where the facilities building. It took about fifteen minutes. So on the way out to the soccer field, I said, "Washapel is an interesting name, Henry. Are you from this area originally?" And he said, "No, I'm actually from um, Quebec, Canada." And old Henry smoked, uh, you know, Lucky Strike thirty twos, you know, wore a big floppy hat, and and he kept lighting up his cigarettes. And I said, "Well." you're from Quebec. How did you end up here at the University of Connecticut? Well, he said, uh, I joined the Army. And this was, you know, we're talking um, uh, he was of the age of World War II and got wounded in France, ended up, at, I'm giving you the short version, ended up at Fort Devons in Massachusetts and met a nurse there that lived in the town next to Stores, Connecticut, Mansfield, Connecticut. And so While the morning wore on, Henry raked, I bagged, and I asked Henry about Henry. And by 11.30 that morning, he looked at me with this weird grin and said, oh, my God, you should be in sales. And I said, why, Henry? He said, because this is not what I had planned to do today. I had planned to drop you off, come back at 11.30, you had me doing the work I wanted you to do. And so that's when I learned I really cared about people and I was fascinated with Henry Storr. And so that's when I realized maybe sales is a, a you know, sort of a, a pathway to, to, to what I really want to do, which was get in the finance world. But I ended up, you know, when, When I graduated from college, I I delivered soda during the summer for Coca-Cola. They offered me a job when I graduated as an account manager, did that for a year. And just realized that uh, I did not, I was a New England boy. I wanted to see the world. So I made some money, took a year off, traveled the world, um, came back home. And my father told me, I lived in Rhode Island at the time. My father told me I had a month to find a job and ended up in the home improvement industry, working for Stanley uh, Tools. Oh, yeah. So uh, that's how I started. So, um, but that's how I realized that maybe sales was a, was a way to go.
0: That's great. Mm-hmm. So, what are um, some of the major skill sets that you have to teach students these days that, uh, you know, that are the core of them being successful in sales when they get out?
1: It's really at, at the end of the day, you have two ears and one mouth. You know, listen twice as much as you speak. And, and young people, they just want to go and sell. And that's not what sales is. Sales is really understanding, you know, the situation you're in, you know, and cultivating that relationship, just like asking your girl out for a date. It is no different. It's, you have to get to know them, they have to get to know you. Before you can ever solve their problem. You know, and I always tell students there's 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 transactional sales like Zig Ziglar, you know, he went from door to door selling pots and pans. I and mean, we had to close them that evening or at least the next day in order for him to survive. Those type of sales Amazon does now. So in B2B sales, it's much more relationship-driven and understanding you know the wants and needs of the customer at the end of the day and you only get that by getting to know that customer so you really have to spend i tell students you know you have to prepare 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 before you make that sales call you just do you just not smile in the dial and it's it's prepare make the call learn from it and then move the you know the change down the field you're not going to close the person right away i mean one time in my life, jumped on a plane, flew to Washington D.C., met with the buyer. Buyer says, "Listen, what you sent me, I love. Um, I'm going to print you an order and have a great day." And I said, "Okay." And I remember getting in the car afterwards and said, "This is what I love about sales. I have the whole afternoon to tour Washington D.C. before I fly back." So I went to Georgetown, had a nice meal, you know, you know toured the Washington Monument, walked, you know, uh, the vault, drove back to BWI, and flew home. I sort of the, but very seldom does
0: that happen, you
1: know?
0: Right. Yeah, that's, that's not the norm. Yeah. One of the interesting areas of being in marketing, uh, we, we align with salespeople all the time. It's one of our core values at Your CMO is that marketing yeah. drives sales. And you know, the purpose of marketing is to support sales. But um, an area where there's always confusion is prospecting. And the question often comes up is, you know, is prospecting something that should be owned by sales or owned by marketing? You know, where, where, uh, and, you know, where, where does lead generation fit into prospecting? Where's that handoff? And you know, I think it really depends on organizations and how they want to you know, set up their, their systems and processes. But what, what's your feeling about prospecting? Is it a sales function or a marketing function?
1: Yeah, that's a it's a great you now back in the day prospect was a sales function. Um, but today you, you know the, it's a huge funnel out there and the, you know SEO and the internet and you know Ad, all that stuff, Google, TikTok, all that drives people into the funnel. Then you have to qualify them. And that 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 becomes the role once it gets to a point where you have a prospect, then the salesperson job is to Qualified, so prospecting really today belongs to the market team, but the qualification at the end of the day belongs to the salespeople. And you know, when I work with companies, you, know, you hear this: marketing's not giving me good good prospects, and that there's a fine line there. They're doing the best they can. I mean, if you know, if you throw out a big net, you know, one of the, one of the things that I love to when I work with companies is you know. What markets do you want to play in, and within those markets, you know who is your ideal customer? Do, can you give me that with any specificity? Most people can't. So really, it's 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 really understanding the markets you want to play in. And once you understand that, then then that becomes okay. Here's here's our target market. You know, Mister Marketing and Missus Marketing. Let's let's go after it in, in such a way that uh, we can get prospects down the funnel and then it's our job as salespeople to pick up the phone and call them and uh qualify at the end of the day
0: yeah i think um you're you're so right it's it's uh, marketing is a prospecting role and qualification is a sales role um but sometimes you'll get salespeople that want to just want to take the order <laughs> and they <laughs> think that's their role And uh, unfortunately, it's not so easy just to be an order taker. That's not much of a sales role at all, in my opinion. Yeah, I have a
1: a young uh, student of mine actually works for a company now that he's given leads, transactional sales. He's making a ton of money. But he said, every week I go in, I get a ton of leads. I close sales. I don't get to build relationships. And he said, you know. I'm ready to go to a company where I can build relationships, because you know I talked to one of my uh, former buyers the other day on the phone, and uh, I, you know, we hadn't done business in 15 years. He's uh, president of a company now, and we just we just loved it. You know, he's my friend. I mean, uh, we became friends over the years because we developed a trust, and and so I have those relationships from so many years back that. Um, you know, I, I tap into when I'm, you know, uh, trying to help companies grow their business, you know, can you, can you point me in the right direction? So I, I truly believe that if you're in the transactional sales business, it's, it's going to wear on you, you know, uh, at the end of the day, as this young uh, student of mine, that's, 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 and like I said, he's making bank. I mean, there's a five and a couple's more than four zeros in front of him. He's doing very, very well. But it's just not happening. and uh, you know I always tell young people you don't know what you don't know. you know so um, but get to a place where you feel um, comfortable selling the product you like the company the culture uh, they give you good tools to be successful you know you have a support network that supports you and encourages you and and that's where you'll find a home at the end of the day yeah. And you'll prosper there.
0: What, uh, what do you think the best compensation structure is for salespeople?
1: Well, as a young person, you know, salary plus some type of bonus. I mean, they, they freak out if it's straight commission. But I always tell students, you know, when you get to a point in your career and you've established, you know, a customer base, take a look at going straight commission you'll be surprised how much money. you can make. Believe it or not, companies look at that and, uh, you know, it, it becomes a, a, a very profitable if you're on salary plus commission. Now, some companies are structured that way. Um, you know, I was, when I was a corporate officer, so I was paid on EBITDA, you know, when it sales, but, you know, drugs, profitable sales, you know, get, uh, you know, cash at the end of the day, um, that's what I got paid on. But as a young salesperson coming out, you know, getting a, a some type of commission plus a, a base salary where you can, uh, you know, at least get an apartment and, and live. Right. Get out of your parents' basement. So as as you move, you know, as you get more and more seasoned, I'm a big believer of straight, straight commission. But there's some companies just don't offer that at the end of the day. Um, you know, if you want to be in... One of my students is insurance sales. He's done phenomenal, but he had a support network. He lived with his parents, you know, when he started off. And but this is, you know, he stuck to it, and now he's got three people working for him. You know, he's bought his first house, had a couple of babies. He's, you know, just rocking the So, um, coming out of college, salary plus some type of uh, bonus structure. But as you get older, you know, commission's the way to go.
0: Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your college World Series experience. Not everybody gets a chance to play in the World Series of baseball in Omaha, Nebraska. How was that?
1: It was, it was so much fun because you're, um, you know, you're, you, you know, you have to fly. And it's actually the second time I ever was ever on an airplane. The first time I actually played in the college baseball Series two years earlier. And it was interesting, um, you know. We get to Omaha, and, and there was a breakfast for us. And what was fascinating, that, and I can't remember the, the catcher's name from Arkansas. We sat next to each other, and we realized we had played each other in the senior baseball World Series two, two years earlier, and actually had gone to the breakfast together and sat next to each other there as well. So, um, so that was interesting. Now we we played Texas in the first game. And we had a guy that could throw 100 miles an hour, and we were up seven to four going in the seventh inning. And, you know, we were, you know, we were a long shot. And uh, our pitcher walked the first batter the uh, top of the seventh, and then he tried to pick him off second uh, first, and and uh, it, it was uh, so we went to third. He walked the, the second batter, no out. So we uh, we took him out, and then basically. Texas Bats came alive, and we ended up losing 11 to 7. And then we had to play Cal State Fullerton. It was pouring rain that day. And um, we went to a um, – back then, you know, you could drink at 18, so we decided, you know, work are later to So we went to a, uh, <laughs> a place called Mickey's. I don't know if it still exists. Um,
0: yeah, I don't know. The uh, stadium moved, so all yeah, the old- Places you know, are no
1: longer yeah, you know, the go-tos. Yeah, the Mickey's was a was a local eatery, so we went there. And we were eating, um, um, you know, our dinner, and, and uh, we were supposed to have the night game that day. So I ended up walking outside and I said, "Hey guys, you know, the sun's out." So we run back to the hotel, and the bus is there. And where you guys have been? And so we ran up, and it and, um, changed really quickly. They took us out to the state, and we played Cal State Fullerton. And and they beat us handily. And so it was, you know, if you lose two, you're out. But there was a guy from Cal State Fullerton that hit a ball so hard that it went straight up into the air. And Rosenblatt was 420 dead center. And I remember our center fielder went back for the ball. He was standing at the warning track looking for the ball. I mean, everybody lost it in the night sky. I mean, it was hit that hard. It actually bounced right next to him, went over the wall for a ground or a double. <laughs> but I have never seen a ball hit that hard in my life. It was a great experience. Um, a lot, of, a lot of my family came. It was just uh, the town goes out of, out of their way to, uh, to to treat you right. And uh, I remember we went out to a ranch when we got there and had uh, a barbecue. And, and it was funny. Our sports caster, uh, Andy Young. Who traveled with the team, who was our, you know, sports announcer. Uh, the host at at the end of it, you know, was thanking us and and realized that Andy wasn't even a player, but he ate the most. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: so it was a it was a great experience.
0: Oh, those those uh, opportunities are rare and uh, sometimes life changing. How did that change your view of the world and what you did from there? Well, you know. Being a,
1: an athlete, you know, you have to, you know, all the, all the tools you need to be in sales, you know, discipline, time management. I mean, you know, I had to, you had to, you know, you had to get your schoolwork done. You had to go to practice, stay in shape. So, you know, all those, you'd be competitive. And, you know, one of the things that I instill on on, on students is, is a competitive edge at the end of the day and time management and, 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 you know, I talk to students, don't be afraid to lose fast. And what I mean by losing fast, in sales, don't waste anybody's time. You know, you're there, if it's a square peg in a round hole, you know what, this isn't a good fit. You know, don't, don't try to sell something that's just not going to work out in the long run. I always tell you what I would call on prospects, is this something you're interested in? And do, do you want to continue the conversation? And, you know, if they said, no, it's not, Then you know, it was an objection I would try to overcome. But at the end of the day, I could get a sense that, you know, this was not going to, you know, be a good fit for either one of us and, and just move on. But, you know, you know, you got to get yourself psyched up to make a call at the end of the day. In preparation, mm-hmm. just like practice, you know, uh, baseball or football, or any game you play. You know, you practice your, your, your pitch. Your, you know, if you have a big presentation, practice your presentation. Just don't get up there and wing it. You know, um, Zig Ziglar always said, um, listen to your voice. You know, on a recording, record yourself. You know, use voice inflection when you, you can. Understand body language. I mean, these are all the things that I've learned over the years um, that i uh, learned basically from playing sports.
0: Yeah, I think sales is one of those skill sets that if you learn it at, at an early age, you can apply it throughout the rest of your life in whatever role you have. And as an entrepreneur, as a leader, you're constantly finding yourself in sales positions, non-traditional sales positions. And I, I think it's Daniel Pink has... Uh, the book, you know, to sell as human or something like that, where yeah. it's just part of what we do. We're constantly having to solve problems, um, influence people and, uh, you know, make sure they're happy about it. And that's, that's kind of the sales process in a nutshell. And so,
1: yeah. you, know, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. I never, you know, worked for Fortune 500 companies. You know, we did a lot of product knowledge training, but no sales training. That's what's fascinating. So I had no method until I read the book Spin Selling back, you know, in the 80s. I said, oh, wow, there is a process, you know. And of course, now, you know, that I teach, there's many processes out there. But it, it, again, it, it gets down to aligning with the buying criteria. Does your product or service align with the buying criteria? And you have to, have to figure out a way it does that. And, and uh, I go back to what I said earlier, it all takes research prior
0: to making that sound school all right let's fast forward you mentioned a bit earlier um before we jumped on the call that you had a, a life-changing uh, epiphany and moment at 55 not to yeah. uh, not to age you that was just yeah. yesterday right yeah, it was um, two days ago yeah. two days ago um can you share what, what happened and what was going on that changed your life and, and yeah what, what it did uh, for you
1: you know in the um Early '90s, I I I, I was recruited to, to come to Greensboro, North Carolina, by this this guy named Hank Living. And he had this rinky-dink company, and um, and I remember sitting with him and, and just liking. Him. I liked him a lot, and, uh, and 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 the products he sold at the time. I, I, I told him, I said, I, I can't help you, you know. I, you know, you, they're mature. You're in a mature industry. You know, you you need uh, you you just don't. You, the just products aren't going are going to sell. I mean, you're you're in maturity. And he said to me, he said, "John, I'm actually merging with another company. Would you be uh, willing to fly up to uh, Massachusetts and walk through that facility?" And I did, and I said, "Wow, I could do something with this company." So we ended up merging the two companies. Um, we ended up working together for 16 years we grew the business to from uh, basically 11 million at the time to a hundred million and sold it. And uh, this was 2009, 2010 during the financial crisis. And, um, and so in 2012, you know, I was still, so I started consulting in the home improvement space (laughs) and there was uh, in 2012, Hey, Hank, Hank Libby, drank himself to death and died. And I went to his funeral and I just, I was, it was sad. 72 years old, great guy, wonderful man. And did, he just sort of lost his purpose in, in life after we resold the business. And so I did a vision board after the funeral. And then that's fascinating. And the vision board was a picture of a classroom. And so the very next day there was an ad in the paper to teach the one sales class at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. So I applied for it, started teaching there. And uh, Joe, Joe, the first class, it was 19 souls. And it, I, I, I prepared like it was a million dollar deal. Walked into the class and uh, asked the students you know, who wanted to be in sales. None of them raised their hands. And I don't know if you remember the show, met my mother, but uh, he was teaching at the NYU <laughs> and he taught the wrong class for about an hour. And realizing that, you know, um, so my father said, Is this the sales class? And the students said, Yeah. And I said, Why are you taking it? And of course, you know, they just sat there with, me. All right, I said, I said, Who wants to be an entrepreneur? So they all raised their hand. I said, Well, good, I'm in the right class. And they said, What do you mean by that? And I said, Well, what do you need to be an entrepreneur? And they said, well, a product or service and a business plan. And I said, well, what do you do with that product or service? Well, you have to find investors. And I said, what's that called? It's different, they said. And I said, no, it's sell. You have to sell. First of all, you have to, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to sell yourself. You have to sell investors. You have to sell partners. And, and, and uh, you know, they can help you manufacture or help you, you know, scale it, you're selling 24-7, 365, and then sell a customer and get paid for it before you run out of money. You are selling like you never sold before in your life. And so one of the students who was not on the group said to me, well, I, I want to be a CFO. I said the same thing. And I brought up Daniel Pink's book to say, you've got to sell your, your, your ideas, your numbers. You know, is this a healthy balance sheet or a healthy, you know, profit and loss statement when you're talking to investors? You, you got to, you know, no manipulation. Everything is about influence and, and using your influence, you know, to make change. And that's all sales is. So, um, yeah, yeah, everybody sells. It's hard.
0: <laughs> so you, that all it's, started from yeah. a, all started from a vision board.
1: Yeah, that's how I ended. And so what's interesting is then the department said, you know, what do you think about a sales program? I said, do universities do that? And he said, very few. But if you, if you do a, a good job, you'll attract sponsors from all over the country. And we did. And they want, they want access to talent because they're looking for sales talent. And so there's a lot of uh, schools now that actually uh, teach sales, uh, create sales programs, sales centers. And it's, it's a great collaboration with the, uh, you know, they're not our competitors. I mean, there are some great people out there teaching sales. But one of the lessons that, you know, the dean here asked me at ECU, what's the, the biggest lesson you learned?" And I said, if you're going to put sales in front of the students, you have to have somebody that actually was in sales. You cannot teach it from a textbook. Cannot. Yeah, for to, sure. It, it can't be. They, they, they won't believe you. It's it's just intuitive, at the end of the day. So it, it's got to be somebody that's been there, done that, got the medal um, that teaches sales. You know, I use this book um, as sort of a, a base. Um,
0: what is that of, selling business yeah, partnerships?
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, you know, it uses terms in there that I've never seen before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. as a matter of fact, you know, um, their midterm, I took it. You know, at the beginning of the semester. I got a sixty-five on it. So I went back and looked at all of, you know, the questions. You know, just you know, you know what? What's the The best form of a, um, you know, it's a referral, but they don't use it as they use it as a uh, continuous chain. You know, it's like one of the questions: What's the best form of getting business? A continuous chain, which is a referral. You know, I, you know, I'm not going to make students memorize what a continuous chain is, but I want you to know what a referral is. At the right end of the day, that's that's the best form of the you know can you refer me to somebody if you can that's a, a great lead to your next customer especially if you're insurance or working for tom james or selling you know um you know instruments that are difficult to get in front of the right people at the end of the day
0: yeah i think the most important skill that entrepreneurs need to have is trust and the most important component of building trust or is of sales is building trust. And so, you know, trust is trust-based selling is, I think the key that um, you find out over time that building your ability to build trust quickly is going to differentiate you as a salesperson. from Yeah, others.
1: absolutely. Absolutely. I absolutely. mean, at the end of the day, and what I have to do is build trust with the students. A great story yeah. that, you know, is um, so we start, you know, I had taught my first class at UCU. <laughs> I'm going to start a sales club. And this young woman, um, I said, Will would, would you, would you consider joining the sales club? And, and she said, I'll think about it. And, uh, you know, and I tell the students that is a, an objection. And it's usually a no. And people tell you to think about it. Well, now this young woman is the vice president of the sales club. And uh, she actually told one of our sponsors, that uh, you know her dad was in sales and and, uh, and that you know, you really have to care about the students at the end of the day I I keep in touch with an amazing amount of my former students that are working all over the country and they're, they're, they're my best referrals now you know um, at the end of the day they found success with companies and and when uh, they talked to their senior leadership about finding to help they said you know, call John Chapman. Because I'm usually pretty good at at pointing young people in the right direction. I know where their where their strengths and weaknesses
0: are, where there'd be a good fit, you
1: know, where there's not gonna be a good fit at the
0: end of the day. As a uh, as an educator, you have had a chance to teach through the pandemic. And uh I think as a salesperson, the pandemic has changed sales forever. Uh How? What would you say some of the maybe fundamentals of that change are some of the skills that salespeople need to learn now that they didn't need to learn before with this remote Zoom-based communication that is so prevalent in our world today? You know,
1: people ask this question to me all the time. Nothing's changed. It really hasn't. And you still have to develop trust. You still have to build that, uh, you know, build your sales pipeline. Nothing will ever replace a person-to-person sales call. Nothing. Breaking bread with somebody, coming to their office, visiting them in person. However, we have tools now that can help us, you know, facilitate sales better. But, I, I, you know, making that first call usually is a Zoom call. But I tell, and and I actually sat on the the Brooks Group, which is a a company out of uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. During the pandemic, I sat on a council of sales executives through this whole pandemic, and it was fascinating to me. The seasoned salesperson took to the technology very quickly. The young person didn't, and you would think the opposite was true. And but at the conclusion, nothing is going to ever replace getting out there. Human on human making a sales call, use the technology, but it's not going to replace it. At the end of the
0: day, would you say technology is then more of a prospecting qualification tool than a sales tool?
1: Yes, I. You know, at the end of the day, again, marketing, you need to qualify somebody. Don't get unless you've done your research and this is actually somebody you really want to meet. Anyways, uh, most of the um, Qualifying should be done via, you know, with a virtual reality we have Zoom um, or some type of modem that allows you to at least meet the person face to face at the yeah. end of the day. But once you qualify, qualifying, you know, get on a plane and go see. Him. You know, people may argue with, me, you know, I want my people to go out and see them. And I always tell people, you know, let's say you have a big customer, you're going to see Amazon and Seattle, and you, you've always wanted to meet Costco. You know, set up an appointment with Costco. Go see him. Don't do it virtually if you can actually meet him face-to-face.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm in some agreement with that. I think the, the value of face-to-face in some ways is even greater now than it used to be because it's not as common. And so there's a real opportunity there. In, a, in the sales approach to deliver um, face-to-face presentations, discovery face-to-face, uh, certainly qualification via Zoom is, is practical and, and makes a ton of sense. I will also add on the delivery side. You know, as a fractional professional, we have a very relationship-built um, service offering. And so mm-hmm. um, trying to deliver that level of service remotely is difficult and so we we've instituted you know mandatory uh, in-person kickoff calls and and uh, their collaboration sessions and uh, quarterly uh, uh, collaboration is preferred over zoom uh, their teams and that's changed our relationship with our customers quite a bit you know at first it was a little difficult to get you know to move the ship in that direction but now that we're doing it everyone the clients and, and our CMOs see the value in that in-person um, work that we do that we used to do mostly remote even before the pandemic we did yeah. a lot of work um, you just can't replace a in-person meeting you just really can't you can't get to know somebody the same without being in person
1: well and you mean you know you're in a meeting and um, you can see the body language and readings. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just nothing will replace it. So, no. no. nothing will replace it.
0: So, what else do you like to do for fun, John? Any, anything? What, what do you do when you're not selling or teaching? I um, I do a lot of reading.
1: I, uh, I, I do. Um, I love history. Uh, just finished Grant's book. Um, it was a long one, but it's fascinating things that we're experiencing today grand experience back in the you know uh, the Civil War and afterwards when he it was president. it's fascinating to me. you know history sort of repeats itself um uh, I play golf not very well I, I walk a lot um I have two little um which oh, I should say we have two little toy pools that I like to go out there and, and walk you know, every morning and uh, I've got a boat down at uh, in New Bern uh uh, North Carolina that I love to take out and tool around, him. so. Uh, but you know, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in continuous learning. Um, somebody asked me when I was going to retire, and I said, "You have to take me out on the Pine Box." I can't imagine um, the joy the joy I get being in front of young people. It's just it, there's nothing like it. There's actually nothing. Like it. Yeah, teaching them uh, life skills. They just don't know what they don't know, and I try to give them the life skills they need to, to at least.
0: Because I will get
1: text or an email from a student. You're not going to believe that. I remember, you brought that up in class, and it actually happened. You know, so that's always a good feeling, and I love hearing from students and how they're doing. And, and uh,
0: do you bring in that? Uh... Guest lectures to students as well. Other other yeah. sales Yeah,
1: probably, you know, yeah. The, as 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 sponsors, they get to they get access. Come in, yeah, they they come in and, and teach the students. One of my dear friends, a guy named Brian Flanagan, he's actually speaking to the sponsors on the sixteenth. He actually worked for Zig Ziglar for twenty one years, and we become became friends uh, through what they call the Sales Educator Foundation where there's actually, it's so funny because you'll, you'll be at these 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 meetings and you get to just some of the neat things that they're doing in the field of sales to teach young people. It's, uh, it's mind-boggling. You know, use an improv. Uh, you know, I use a, I do a class on improv. Um, I do a class on, uh, uh, on uh, you know, a professor at VCU did this, like Aaron, I can't remember his last name, on the use of uh, texting, what that does to you. It's fascinating, the results when you you do those type of exercises in front of students. And I tell students, and I actually talked this summer, you know, the cell phone's an addictive, it's just addictive. And, you know, it's like open up the cabinet at, at 13 or 14, drink the liquor, social media is, it's good, but you need to shut it off. And I've sort of given up on it in the classroom. You know, I just, I just, you know, have your cell phones, you know, go be texting back and forth. You know, whatever they're doing is more important than, than what I'm trying to tell them. I just, like I said, I, I used to be no cell phones, but now I've just come back with it, you know. I even told yeah. one student, to, you guys are addicted to it. Oh, we're not. I said, well, can you turn it off? Uh, no but I said as you get older you'll realize that it is distracting you really want to focus and get some work done turn it off you know it's like you know I don't remember brought this up somebody went on vacation and uh, got back and you know they had 1500 emails three of them were important you know it's just, and, yeah. And they really could wait for a week at the end of the day. But I also say sales is 24 seven. Even if you're on vacation, you still have to check in, and make sure the balls keep moving at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. I think that's the hard part of the sales life. Uh, it is a, there is a demand or an expectation, I should say, that uh-huh. you're responsive um, more often than not within a 24 hour window. And so yeah. it's, That nine to five worker is not going to excel in a sales role if they wait till nine the next morning to respond to that email or that text or that in, in, you know, and, and I find that, um, support team members need to know that as well. If you're going to be an inside support and that's where marketing kind of sometimes blends into sales, you know, marketers generate leads, but you got to be responsive to get that, you know, prospect warmed up for a qualifying call. And if yeah, you wait absolutely. too long, the prospect's gonna go away. Man, they're not interested in me.
1: So I, I I tell a great story back before we had you you remember, well, you may, you're fifty. I'm a little old, a little more seasoned than you. I, you, know, you know, I used to know where all the all the places where payphones were. Oh yeah. I, and um, I'd stop and you know, dial into my voicemail, listen to my voicemail and uh I used to go up to i had a place up in new england and take the took the kids up there for this for the month of august and every day and we had a big trade show in the middle of august so my customers were going to see me at the trade show they were see me before and they didn't want to see me afterwards but i'd r- ride my bike into town because we had no phone in the cabin i go to the pay phone and uh, dial into the office and, and see you know everybody called me and deal with any fires I need to put out and I'd ride my bike home, you know, so. Yeah,
0: I had the, I had a sales job about, uh, my second job out of college. I was driving around Western Missouri and Eastern Kansas, um, from little town to little town. And I knew where every cell phone, every payphone was in town. Yep. I had my MCI card and I dialed one, <laughs> one 800 number to get into the office. Beep, beep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, those were, uh, those were the days. Uh, and somehow we were productive. We um, <laughs> yeah. got stuff sold. I, I actually, you, you'll appreciate this. So
1: I'm sitting in front of the buyer at Home Depot. My, you know, this is back in 19, I'm going to date myself, 1984. And he says, John, uh, I'm going to, I like what I see. Uh, I'm going to fax you on an order. And so I didn't know what a fax was. And I just sat there, he said, John, I'm, I'm going to fax you an order. And so I was smart enough to realize that this is the end of the meeting. I left. I remember driving back to the office and, and, and saying to, um, to the receptionist, hey, I think we got our first order from Home Depot. She goes, yeah, it's on the fax machine back there. And it was all, you know, think about it. That has come and gone in our life, in my lifetime.
0: I've got one funny f- fax story uh, about 10 years ago we were doing some work for a client and uh, i got a little video production company that did some marketing at, at you know, advertising design work. And we ended up working for a dentist. Um, and it was a, an endodontist. They did root canals. So his customer was dentists. He was looking for referrals and we did a uh, marketing um, like Halloween. It was this, this time of year. and uh, I forget, you know, but something around, you know, candy causes you know whatever dentist problems talk if you got anybody need to root canal call us but we came up with this really clever um message and design and i came up with the idea because i noticed that all the dentists still had fax machines and so i said well why don't we fax this to the dentist this is going to be unique they're not going to get a flyer over fax very often so we took this really beautiful kind of color, full color sales document, marketing piece. And we faxed, like, I want to say 750 dentists in the Omaha area. The calls were off the hook. And I'm like, yes, it's working. Well, everybody was calling because we were jamming up their fax <laughs> machines. They, there was so much data on this full colored you know, pixelated document that it was just like they couldn't stop it. And so they were calling to complain. So I told the dentist, I told, told the endodontist like, all right, well, at least we got their attention, but let's not do that anymore. Well, the endodontist decided to do it again the next day. <laughs> <laughs> like that was not a good idea because then it got even worse calls. But anyway, <laughs> <That's a funny. laughs> so there is uh, there are channels to get people's attention and different uh, ways to get it. That was the <laughs> takeaway. There. <laughs> it was fun.
1: So, what are some of your biggest challenges,
0: Joseph? Um, my biggest challenge? Well, I've got a I've got a few personally, uh, professionally. The, uh, the biggest challenge that I'm trying to solve right now is um, remote work. And when I say remote, we have a large uh, team of fractional CMOs uh, and marketing coordinators uh, and support team members that all live, that all work remotely. And some live across the globe in the Philippines, some live in Mexico, some live in the US, and they're all remote first. Uh, so. The challenge is, how do you build a, a remote team that uh, is strong with culture, uh, is aligned, and uh, is, is uh, motivated uh, to show up, do the work? And, and we've got a really good team. But the traditional tools out there for leading an uh, organization, things like um, EOS traction or scaling up or four disciplines of execution, their OKRs, uh, the great game of business, all of those <laughs> tools um, are challenged by this remote workforce and this communication difference between in-person and uh, virtual. So I'm spending a lot of energy trying to figure out how we, how we lead our teams better. And what I've come across is what I call decentralized leadership. And it starts with the idea that everyone in the organization is a leader at every level, Um, and that we have teams of leaders, not leadership teams, and that we use our time in meetings uh, to build teamwork in addition to making the big decisions for the organization. And that approach, although it's simple, when you go deep into it and you start treating everybody and expecting everybody to be a leader at, at every level of the organization, um, it starts to build ownership and and, and accountability in a different way. And, and you have to have an intent. You have to have a belief that, uh, you know, every. you have to assume a positive intent when you're doing this because um, there's, there's a large expectation of empowering people at different levels. That, you know, when you have a company that's all, everybody's all located in one office, there's a lot of water cool conversations, a lot of drop-ins to the, uh the someone's desk or office throughout the day you can manage by wandering around but when you have a remote team you don't get any of that mm-hmm. and so the the it's truly a different way of leading and uh growing a company and so we're focused internally quite a bit on implementing these decentralized leadership uh practices but it also applies externally because all of our clients all of them are remote first like we zoom in Ninety days, uh, you know, ninety days at a time. We're on at least once or twice a week via Zoom, and we're trying to build these leadership roles within the organization in a decentralized environment. It's very difficult. So we're we're also uh, looking at how to solve these challenges with our clients as well. It's, it's a it's a fascinating challenge. Um, you know, part of the solution is to create intentional in-person opportunities as we discussed. Uh, but then there's also just the realities of um, when you have a meeting in a traditional organization, you want to get in and out as fast as possible. And you, know, you need to be on, uh, have a specific agenda and get you know, make it meaningful because no one likes meetings. Well, when you have meetings in a decentralized organization, you need to intentionally extend the meeting and create opportunities for, for teamwork and, and team building uh, and catch up and getting to know each other and opening the window, the jahari window, as I say. Um, and that's counterintuitive. So um, those are some of the, the things that we're exploring and
1: it's I'm excited about. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the future. I mean, because I do work with companies and <clears throat> they're asking me as we come out of this pandemic, do I bring people back to the office? and i i said you know if they're brand new to the organization yes you know um but if they're seasoned you know maybe uh, twice a week if they're in town you know I, you know i try i was a traveling salesperson you know last place i wanted to go was the office um i probably got back home i mean I had my office at home uh, i'd wander in there uh, you know, at least once a week but uh you know when i when i did manage and, and uh, lead salespeople, I was in the office, we had meetings, but at the end of the day, our meetings were on Monday, and then wherever was in town on Friday, I took them to lunch. And, uh, you know, you know, I didn't see a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I don't care, or Friday. As long as, uh, as our Monday morning meeting, you know, uh, when we looked at the metrics, you know, they were all pointed in the right direction, you know, you know that's how I graded the uh, my sales team at the end of the day, you know, activities that lead to outcomes. That's what I was after.
0: Yeah. And I think the, the approach that you mentioned where if they're new, bring them in the office, if they're experienced, you know, maybe a couple of days a week. And that is the reality. And a lot of people believe that and, and it makes sense. But the question is why? Like, why would you have a different level of uh, expectation? And I think the answer is trust. You don't yeah. trust the new people like you trust the seasoned people, and that's okay. But yeah. also, they, you don't trust that you can build culture remotely as you can in person. And so, it's, a, it's exactly the problem with remote work. It and is. Because you, in, in all reality, it's hard to, to find a person remotely and start to build trust and having them to get to know you well enough to understand your culture and be part of the team that trusts you, it's a two way street.
1: Yeah, and at the end of the day, you know, going out, and breaking bread, you know that, you know, getting to know somebody on a personal level, having a beer after you know happy hour, that is so different than, than uh, That's really what I think we missed in this pandemic was yep. that that human to human connection that. Uh, I think pe- people are, 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 are still longing for a feeling yeah. of belonging, especially young people. They, you know, they want to feel that they belong. At the end of the day, if they feel yeah. they belong,
0: then they'll, they'll prosper. So that's that's my my biggest challenge.
1: Yeah, it's a, uh, it's I've, I've, I'm hearing it. I mean, it's uh, it's a challenge for everybody. Is, is how do you how do you install a culture remote?
0: Yeah. So. And teamwork um, and trust. That's, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Well, John, I really appreciate your time today. This has been oh, a great fun. conversation. It's been a lot of fun and we touched on a lot of different topics. So um, I will be uh, excited to see if we can get in person someday to, to connect and uh, maybe over some golf, or if you want to come back to the college world series and, and have a and visit anytime I'm here, you're, we can connect for sure.
1: Oh, you know, that, because you actually go to it every year, don't you?
0: Generally, there's always an event or two, a game oh. or two that I'll, I'll, I'll make, um, it's super hot though man like it's it's so hot that time of year in omaha people don't realize it i mean it's baseball it's outside you're fine but it is hot <laughs> it's usually great I,
1: I just remember the announcer one day saying um i thought this was the funniest one the announcer announces um there's a ford you know, I don't know a ford pickup truck license number 625732 your lights are getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. <laughs> that
0: <great>. that's funny <laughs> they were
1: they were pretty there i just remember that i was was great yeah so
0: all
1: right joseph i appreciate
0: it yeah and for our audience thanks for uh listening if you want to reach out to john hill's his, his Contact information will be in the show notes. But, John, what's your preferred way for uh, someone to reach like, out to you? Yeah,
1: it's John L. Chapman uh, on LinkedIn. Um,
0: Great. So, John L. Chapman on LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. Well, looking forward to talking to everybody next week. Thanks, John. It is Halloween here today. So Have fun tonight. Uh, I hope the next time somebody watches this, they can recall their favorite piece of candy when the, when we've recorded it.
1: I'm going to tell you Reese's peanut butter
0: cup right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. That sounds good. I always like to get uh, the, the dark chocolate. That's my favorite. <laughs> All right. Well, have a great one. Thank you. We'll see you. Thank you. And that's a wrap. There's another successful episode of the Fractional C-Suite Retreat. See our show notes and more episodes at com. This podcast is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow, save time and money with better marketing strategy and fractional execution. Visit them at Y-O-R-C-M-O.com, your CMO.com. Spelled wrong on purpose.